Hello, and welcome to the podcast for episode 201, the first episode of season two of Outlander. I'm Ronald D. Moore, executive producer and developer of the Outlander television series. And today I'm joined by two very special guests, our post-production co-producers, Michael Halloran and Alicia Bissette. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. Uh, obviously, we'll be talking a lot about post in this particular broadcast, but uh, right off the top here, just in terms of story, um, fans of the book know that this is not how book two opens. Dragonfly and Amber actually opens in a very different way in, uh, in 1968, as a matter of fact. And uh, we decided early on in the process that we weren't going to open season two that way. I sort of felt that that was too big of a leap for the audience to take from the sailing away to France and then go all the way to the 1960s and instead opted to go to the 1940s and sort of see Claire's journey as she, after she came back uh, through the stones at Dunn. Now originally this sequence that you're looking at now with Claire at Dunn having just come from the, from the 18th century back to the 20th, originally wrote this uh, with an eye towards making it the tag of season one, where you would have gone from the sailing ship, that last shot of them uh, sailing off uh, towards France, and then fade out and then fade back in with this sequence of Claire mysteriously waking up at Cragna Dunn, coming back to the 20th century, and uh, you'd be wondering what the hell happened and oh my god, and then it was, the idea was to make it sort of a cliffhanger for, for season one. Talked about it a lot internally, talked about it with the network, ultimately decided that the image of the sailing ship was such a lyrical, cinematic way to uh, put a period at the end of the sentence of season one, as it were, that we opted to go with that. And so this, this, this whole Cragna Dunn and uh, Claire meeting the, the guy on the road, uh, we switched to become the opening of uh, season two. Now this stuff was shot later, as I recall. I'm trying to remember when we shot, a lot of this stuff was shot at a sequence usually, but was this stuff shot later in the, in we, the We were shoot? waiting to, we had locked the show actually, yeah. and we were waiting on the opening scene. Uh, it was the only thing we needed, but we got it significantly. Uh, yeah, I believe because we started after. shooting in May, and then uh, I believe this footage came in in August. Uh, so a lot of our uh, episodes throughout both you know season one and season two, uh, schedule-wise, Oftentimes we're working with pieces as we go. Yeah, I remember that this episode was shot in what we affectionately called the super block of episodes at the beginning of season uh, two, in that we normally shoot the show in blocks of two episodes. And this time out, uh, for various scheduling reasons, we decided to shoot three at a time. There was another piece of Claire, as I recall, screaming and being upset after she came out of the stones. Right, and she walked down the hill, um, and then there was a long walk to the road, um, and we had voiceover. Oh, right. Tons of voiceover. The long yeah. voiceover. And then, yeah, but we, and we kept it in the show, and then we just cut it it's during the, the cutting process, It right? was more cinematic, we felt, in the end. To drop the voiceover. To have no voiceover. And we're all against the um, constraints of total running time. You have to keep right. under an hour. Right. right. What's the actual running time we have to hit? Uh, usually, well, Stars is very kind to us, but uh, usually it's around 59, 35-ish. Yeah, and then we're always trying to get, like, right to the, to the side. Right. To the very end, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah those are their credits. I remember when we were doing a Battlestar together, occasionally we would, we would cheat and try to speed up the show. Yes, Varus Speed. Varus Speed, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
which <laughs> get an extra 30 seconds out of the credits. Is it that much? It's like 30 seconds. No, I think we got the credits down to 30 seconds. Oh. They're supposed to be like 53 or something. It's surprising when you verispeed the show, and that just means you're literally running the film faster. Yeah, and the know. problem is you have to watch out for the female actresses, or female actresses anyway, because their voices tend to go really high-pitched when you oh, right. speed it up. And sometimes things fall and you can catch it with your eye that mm. they're moving at the wrong speed. But most of the time, it's a new version for the first time. Oh, that's right, we changed the main title. So we started to started to make the changes here, and then the title will continue to evolve as season two uh, moves forward. This was shot. Uh, we call these uh, the title card sequences, which is something we came up with in season one. Is now the bane of production because we're always, oh, what about the title sequence? And they have to be exactly sixteen seconds and no, sixteen and two thirds seconds. Yes, very <laughs> precisely. Matt Roberts, I believe, shot yes. shot that title. That's my favorite one, I think. Oh yeah, we Roger, we love we Roger. That shot of Frank, uh, his feet walking out into the hospital was going to that would have been the opening to season two if we had had kept the Kragna done sequence at the beginning at the end of season one. That was my my inspiration was oh we'll open on Frank's feet. It has a very Coen Brothers feel to it. <laughs> it is sound, yeah. somewhat Coen Brothers, isn't it? Now, coming up are two things. Uh, there's a song you're about to hear, and then there's also a look out the window. Both, one is a whole music thing that we had to go through, and one is a visual effects thing we had to go through. There's the song. And what's involved in clearing a song for... For TV, people think, oh, gee, why don't you just use, use music and TV? And how complicated <laughs> is it? Right. Well, it's very. Uh, first, we have to choose the song um, and the time period to make sure it's accurate. So we try to make sure that this song is pre-1948. Um, it would be something that was played in the UK or Scotland. Uh, and then what I do is I uh, once we've you know we contact Sony Music, which helps us give us a smaller selection that we know can clear. And then it's all about cost. Yeah, it's well. very helpful when Alicia gets the cleared songs up front so we don't throw in Rolling Stones and <laughs> right. Beatles. Yeah. And yes. <laughs> yeah. Because they want lots of money. Yes. Exactly. And people tend to fall in love with it. And, uh, and then I have to bring the bear back. Yes. <laughs> now, this shot, at the shot, the shot looking out the window is a visual effects shot. There's actually just a big green screen outside of Claire's window. All of this is. And that is Kulan. There's Kulan. Ron and Terry's dog. There he is. <laughs> literally dragging somebody down yes. the road. Yes. <laughs> Uh, setting up a VFX shot like this is kind of more complicated than you would think because it involves a lot of people's eye lines and who's standing where and what, you know, how. F I remember as Richard, our um, visual effects producer, uh, sent the shot, the preliminary shots back, there was a lot of discussion about how far away the building right, across the street, the perspective. Is she on the first floor? Is she on the second floor? We, had, we went with the first floor because of the whole, you know, street sounds. Um, also, if you saw the before and afters of this, there's actually, uh, I think, four different layers. Uh, the people, the buildings. Oh, right. They're all different they're layers. They're all different. Right. Like, Kulon's a different Kulon's layer. Kulon's a different layer. Uh, Frank, keep it, maintaining Frank's uh, reflection in the window is another layer. It's a lot of work for seconds of screen time. It right. really is. But it was, I thought it was really important that we firmly root Claire in the 20th century in this, in this opening sequence. So. I wanted her to be sort of overwhelmed by the music, the sounds from the street, the urban population, the buses, the whole thing, to sort of be shocking her back. She definitely has culture shock. She <laughs> definitely has culture shock. Yeah, this is, it, speaking of 
host problems. This was a sequence we had a lot of trouble because uh, Katrina's arm was in that position in some of the shots, but it wasn't in other shots, so we had to digitally fix that. Oh, did you digitally yeah. fix it? You can't tell. But Wasn't there also some question about the later when we see her photograph, what position she was right. in in the bed to have the photograph in? Right, the photograph wasn't exactly what she was doing in the bed, so we had to manipulate <clears throat> the photograph then. I was always a little worried. It's like I love this beat with the clothes, with her her clothes. But I was always a little worried that it didn't quite read on camera. That, like, did you know what that is? Did you understand what that, you know, that that folded fabric right. was sitting over there? Did you get it? And sort of just have to go with it that the audience is is smart enough to keep following along. Yeah, it's interesting because when you're cutting it, it all makes sense. You know, yeah. I'm seeing the dailies and I see, you know, a three minute shot of that <laughs> set of clothes. So. Right, and they're there again as well. Yeah. This used to open with a shot of little Roger running around the, the yard with his, uh, his toy airplane, as I recall. But I, I felt that starting on Roger and being outside in the garden was sort of starting the sequence on the wrong foot because I still wanted to be with Frank. You know, you right now you followed Frank in uh, from the hallway into the doctor. You've gone into the room with him. You're still with, I wanted to still be with him and the Reverend at this point in the story and wait and then go outside to the garden. And starting with Richard, uh, Roger running around with the, the airplane sort of puts you emotionally outside mm -hmm. the house. It was kind of a pleasant tone also. Yeah, it was very it just... lyrical. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very much Team Frank, so I love the part where he smells her clothes. I find Frank? that so touching. I love, I love Team Frank. <laughs> I haven't taken sides yet. <laughs> I'm Team Claire. <laughs> I was very happy to have the Reverend and love the Reverend, Reverend back and Mrs. Graham. Yeah, both of them are just great actors. Uh, when I uh, first draft of this scene, when I wrote it, I actually had Frank even less involved. He was instead of the clothes, he was going to be sitting there pouring over a folio of. Uh, the Iliad, I think, and uh, was really immersed in it. And Reverend Wakefield was the one talking about Claire, and why won't she talk? And you know, how long is it going to be? And Frank was trying to just sort of immerse himself and study and give Claire all the time that that he wanted. And it was also basically because I was reading a book called Why Homer Matters at the time, <laughs> and I was how and, indulgent of you. Oh, I did it all the time. It's like whatever book I'm reading usually finds its way into my right? series and some because I'm like, oh, now I'm fascinated with the Civil Good War. Good thing you weren't reading comic books at exactly. that time. Exactly, <laughs> there would have been a Batman yeah. reference in there. It would have been very not unfrank. <laughs> Uh, this fighter pass that's about to happen. Uh, I wanted this for a couple of reasons. The fighters in play in the sky, and then Mrs. Graham's little speech here about problems in West Berlin and Stalin. I wanted to not only remind the audience where we were in, 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 in time, but also sort of emphasize that Claire has missed a lot of history, even in the 20th century. She was gone for a couple of years. When she left Scotland and the UK, it was in the immediate aftermath of World War II. Everyone was exhausted and tired and just couldn't believe that the catastrophe was over. But 
just a couple of years later, they're already talking about a potential new war with Russia, and it's just, I wanted to just emphasize the speed of change in the, in the 20th century. I remember those those airplanes going through a few passes as, as well, didn't they? Yeah, actually, those were, those were um, our wonderful, yeah, because FX uh, producer Richard Briscoe did a lot of research ahead of time, so I think it was mostly just the movement that we had to nail down. The look of the planes uh, pretty much only went through a couple passes, though. Sound went through several passes. Yes. Did the sound yes. go through passes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. you wanted that exact, accurate sound, so. Yeah, we're very, we try to be very, very historically yes. accurate. Yes, we're precise. Show. It's hard to really convey how different the sound is uh, in the editing bay and what it is in the final mix stage. Totally. Editing, day. you guys have, what kind of, you have? Well, we're just using the Avid. I mean, I, I've, there are shows that have a full sound department in the next room, so mm -hmm. when they hand the rough cuts in, they are fully mixed. Uh, and, you know, there's shows that are a lot simpler sound-wise, that don't have a lot of music usually, but uh, the nice thing that we can do in the rough cut that you can't get away with in the final mix is we can be a little uh, overzealous with the sound, like to sell the point, because people know, oh, it's just temp, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's, it's a lot tougher for the sound guys than uh, our people are amazing. We've same people we've worked with since Battlestar, um, Anifex. Yep, they do all Vince our sound editorial. Is a wonderful sound designer. Although we must be very spoiled by the period that we do these shows, because what, 10, 15 years ago, how much sound would there have even been in temp, in temp cuts? And uh, well, we worked on Star Trek together. Right. When we showed the temp cuts to Rick Berman, the showrunner at the time, we didn't have any music or sound in the temp. Is there no music? No. It was, no, 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 no music whatsoever. And towards the end, we started putting in the sound, but it was just so time-consuming. Mm. Um, and now we can, you know, throw it in there fairly quickly just to sell the idea. Um, it's my favorite part, actually, is doing the sound. <laughs> I love doing the, the sound and the music. Yeah. I love doing the music. You don't find that the technical aspect of that part is just so tedious to like it's, sync up the no. The you know what it is. You get quick at it. You yeah. really do. And uh, well, Mikey gets quick. At it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to note, he's a rare, he's a rare individual. This one. And, and but the greatest thrill of doing the music is in that rare occasion when Bear, our uh, wonderful composer, will send me a little note saying, oh, I was a, you know, slightly inspired by the temp, but even that, is, <laughs> you know, coming from Bear. From Bear, that's right, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> It was almost acceptable. Right? No, but yeah. <laughs> Bear brings the show to a whole nother level. Well, this is obviously sort of, to me, this, this sequence coming up here is really the heart of the show. You know, when Claire decides to tell Frank the story, and then Frank's reaction to the story, and his subsequent breakdown, and his, then his embrace of her even after all that. To me, that's what this episode was all about, and, that's, and it was the thing I looked forward to the most when we were breaking it, and it was the thing I enjoyed the most uh, when I was writing it. There was some, I, I mean, we, we joke about Team Frank and, and, and Team Jamie a lot, you know, and, and and some of the fans get really upset about it, which, is, which makes yes. me, I think, is even funnier. <laughs> but um, I, I, I've always had liked Frank, and I've always sort of had an affinity for the character, and I wanted to play him trying to live up to the mission statement that he gave in episode 101. In 101 last year, he has a scene, you know, in a setting much like this where, you know, he, 
he, he starts to talk about whether Claire might, or might not have had an affair during the Second World War, and she gets upset, and he says, look, I'm just trying to say if you did, if you had an affair, I would forgive you for it, and that I would love you no matter what, and, you know, forever, and, you know, my love to you is, is eternal. And that's a pretty big thing for people to say. And usually people say those things, they don't really mean them. <laughs> and I kind of like the idea that Frank really meant it, and now this was going to put that to the test. Here she's been gone for two years, she comes back, and he's trying to say, look, I don't care where you've been, it doesn't really matter, we're going to just go on. I, I promised, you know, I would. She knows she's got quite a tale to tell, and she's got some big news that she, has to, she, she must tell him about the pregnancy. But he's going to try to live up to that promise no matter what. And that even after she tells him this long story, all literally all night, he's—it's like an amazing story. It's a crazy story, but he's in that moment. I think he digs deep down and he goes, "I'm still going to try to stand by that word. I'm still going to say I love you. I'm still going to be there no matter what." Because he wants to be that guy. It's like Frank wants to to be that man that he said he was. And then she says, "But I'm pregnant by another man," and it even that blows it up for Frank. Like, Frank can't go to that place yet. And so he has this big emotional reaction and, you know, trashes all the stuff in the, in the shed and then comes back and still is willing to have her, but now on his terms instead of her. So I, I just really like that. I like that it was a really interesting place to take the character. I thought it was implicit in the books. I mean, this scene, th these are scenes that were not literally in the books, but they... It, to me, they were sort of implied by the storyline in that as you read the books and you read the story of Frank and Claire, a lot of it's told in flashback or you know, just from her reminiscing about things that were actually not played explicitly in the books, you kind of got a sense that Frank must have been like this on some level. It, yeah, later he has his issues and their marriage has issues and all that, and we'll, we'll play that and I won't get into it right now. But I kind of felt like any guy that's willing to take her back after being gone for two years and she's pregnant and agrees to raise that child as his own has some kind of extraordinary moral courage or at least some kind of like uh, intent about you know how much he loves this woman and how much he wants to live up to a certain idea of who he is as a man and so I, I was fascinated with Frank and this was a great opportunity to really go for it and I just had tremendous faith that Tobias was gonna was gonna carry it off. I have to say, I, I had never met Tobias, and I was over. Oh, really? I came to Scotland to cut this episode, if you remember. And Tobias had uh, this was one of the last scenes he did, and then he rapped. And David Brown, our amazing producer, brought Tobias down and just kind of knocked on the door. I wasn't expecting them, and they said before uh, Tobias, David said before Tobias takes off, is there any way you can show him what you've cut together of this scene? Uh, and I have to say, he was just the most humble. Uh, just one of he, he was. Do you think I got it? And I'm like, oh my God, you're gonna. Is an Emmy nomination guaranteed right here? Um, I mean, it's just one of the most. I, I think in the series, the best performances of any scene, the two of them. Um, yeah, it's great. It just, it's, it's, it's and it was really great to sit there with him though and watch. His, his, yeah. I, I, st I stared at his reaction out of the corner of my eye the entire time, and you know, I can say he was just like any real artist. He was, you know, nervous and it was just really yeah. just. A well, wonderful guy. And isn't in this scene, because you I mean, he does such a great performance, I think there's literally a 50-second tape yeah. where yeah. we stay on him while he's explaining to Claire his decision. It, it's right after this in the scene with yeah. the uh, reverend. Yeah, where yeah. he just yeah. hold it, and it's I, I so I think that was a record for us, you're right. Yeah, it was a record, but it's so good. <laughs> oh, you, you couldn't cut. Away. 
Oh yeah, that was with the red curtain. Right, it's coming up right after. Oh yes, you have to tell about the red curtain when we get there. Oh yeah, that's right, the curtain. Uh, One of the more difficult VFX in the entire show, and you would never yeah. know at all. You have no, well, I hope you have no idea. <laughs> and this is a tough scene, I have to say, for Katrina as well, because she has to, she has to hold back and not respond to this right. man. And, and, and the yet, restraint is amazing. It's amazing restraint, and she's not asking the audience to be sympathetic. She's not like begging the audience to, oh, feel bad for me because I'm trapped in a difficult place too. She's really holding firm to like, I've got this. I've got to tell him these things and I'm trying to send them away. I have to say, editing this, this scene, it was one of the few times where the two actors were so powerful, you wanted to not cut away ever from either one of them. So it was a real, I have to say, I probably recut this more than any scene I've ever recut. Really? This scene? And, and it was easy to cut. I mean, both performances were perfect. The, even the technical stuff, the matching worked beautifully. It was just... You know, it's a long scene. It's like seven, six, seven minutes almost. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just deciding which line to be on. The reactions from Katrina were perfect for the entire thing, and his performance during this entire you know, speech here was perfect. So it was very. Can you split it, it was, exactly. It was so time. difficult. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, sucks, it sucks you in. We can hardly hear back here. <laughs> it's like. There was nothing you could say or do to change how I felt about you. I meant it then, and I mean it now. Thank you. 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 No, you just love him as he walks into this bus stop. And it's almost one consistent take the entire time. Yeah. I mean, that's the other great thing. I could cut it does anywhere. feel like the same yeah. take. I think we only did, uh, met and the director only did two takes of this, and really? both are perfect. So you, it was great. I could cut any time I wanted to. I'm pregnant. That's the reaction. Yeah. For a second, he's. I love the fact, I love the idea that for a second he's right. happy and excited, and it just takes a minute to like, wait a minute. Right. How could that be? And you just see that one two-second shot in his eyes yeah. perfectly comes clear to the audience and to him. It's just... she sees Randall right yeah. now. And it's and she's not backing down. Right. And I love that. And then yeah. he sees that and he's like, who is this woman? Yeah. I love that. That's my one of my favorite exchanges between the two of them. I think in some ways she wants him to hit her because that yeah. would make the decision right. so much easier because mm -hmm. then she could just walk away. And then, of course, now she's... Now she's I love how she grabs her stomach, the baby, you know, she's holding her stomach there. This oh. little beat of, of this little beat, this beat of Frank going out and in, in, going into the tool shed and smashing everything came uh, it was a suggestion uh, from Ira actually Ira Bear in that the fir my first pass at it the scene was with Claire and Frank was pretty much the same and he left but Ira said you know I think you need something else he's just had this enormous uh, revelation oh, so this wasn't in the original this wasn't in the oh, first wow. draft 
Uh, he said, I think you just need to see something bigger. You need to see some expression of anger. He's too much of a mensch, I would say. He's too much of a mensch. He's already a mensch. We already love him, but there's a humanity that you got to play. And what's this guy's real reaction? And see the rage and see the, the frustration. And I said, oh, that's a good note. And then came up with this, this way of just going out and smashing things on the tool shed. I love how it slowly goes into slow motion and we lose the sound. Yeah, I like all that. How many takes of this were there? Two. It's two? Two. Yeah, they, they couldn't build the shed over again that yeah, many times. Yeah, I think that was, <laughs> that's the limit. The prop part. people were... Yeah, they're like, we're out of boxes. Right. And <laughs> I love him putting his hand oh, on his face. Oh, that's the best. The Reverend has a very nice home. Yes, he does. <laughs> Uh, this scene is day one. That, in fact, that might be day one's first shot. Might be that. Mikey and I were standing outside. One yes. of were you? We had one yeah. of the rare times we get to actually come to set, so yep. we were very excited. It's such a treat to have you guys. Yes. We had fun. This house is so out there because this is also uh, the bed and breakfast. This, this is like this kind of crazy house, and the people, the, the landlords, or the people that own it, not the landlords, are very kind to us and uh, let us use it over and over again. But you just want to wander through this house and keep opening doors because there's just all this stuff like everywhere. Well, and it's so picturesque even outside. It's yeah. got the, there's lambs. So yeah. what, what is it ordinarily? It's nothing? I mean, is it not a... It's uh, just a, it's owned by just a private Do they family. live there? They live there. Oh, they, they live do. up in some of the upper floors. And the exterior of the house is not the interior of the house, obviously. Uh, not obviously. Gotcha. People at home, the, the exterior right. of the Reverend's uh, Wayfield's house is actually a completely different city from the interior. Ah. So this interior is, is a is part of a very large house with multiple floors and every time you turn a corner there's some new and intriguing <laughs> right. bunch of stuff that you just kind of go, oh my god, what's this? This is from the Boer War. <laughs> when I remember the house wasn't that big, like if what you're not seeing on camera, I remember that you got like 50 crew in there. I was like shocked sandwich. too. Right? Like I remember when we tried walking we felt in, really in the way. like every little nook and cranny had a crew member. But it rambles on yeah. and on and on. Oh, this is what you were talking about, Alicia. Oh, this is the shot. Yes, this here tape. it comes. So, um, obviously we play uh, our great DP. Um, plays a lot with light. And so that red curtain back there actually isn't there. Uh, that's a visual effect. Um, it is there. We just couldn't see it because uh, it just didn't show up on film. And uh, Frank kind of felt like he was in this black hole for a little And while. it's kind of amazing. I mean, it's a very complicated effect, actually, because there's some other background there that wasn't coming in, there was something wrong with the actual piece of film, so you had to replace it, and yeah, it was just nothing. you can't was, tell that he, I mean, that looks completely real, there's yeah. no mask, there's, I mean, job well done. Well, and then uh, it turns, and you see the reverence scene, so there's a rack focus, there's right. all it kinds a of difficult things in there. It's, it's one of those, we have lots of those kind of hidden visual effects right. from our shows. And like I said, this is such a great performance, we wanted to hold this take, you just hold on Frank. But when you didn't see the curtain, and when literally that was just black, it felt like we had gone to a theater all of a sudden. Yes, we were doing like, something stylistic. It was very stylistic, and it felt like it kind of took you out of the show. Yeah. That's the one thing. I mean, Alicia has to spend an incredible amount of time on visual effects that no one would ever know were visual effects. There's because of the modernization pass she needs to do. Well, yeah, the, the explain fact that. that it's very we, interesting. Well, the fact that. Most of, I would say, 
a lot of our visual effects shots, I hope anyway, nobody ever notices. It's to make us back into, take us back in time into the, you know, 1700s, the early 1900s. Um, and make sure you see no antennas, no, sometimes, you know, even sound, you've got to watch out for if there's a plane. Signs, road signs, signs uh, gutters. Gutters, you know. Uh, we researched a lot of gutters. Let's talk about ear holes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we can. Well, maybe I'll save that for the next podcast. Next, next podcast. Yeah, certain, um, certain actors and actresses have earring holes that should not be there in the 18th century. Yes. And we have to occasionally try to cover them up. Yes. Um, but yeah, so we have a, there's uh, a lot of research. I, I mean, even I remember season one, I learned that in Scotland they didn't have uh, white window paint. So we had to make sure that we oh, removed wow. that in the obvious shots. I mean, it will probably well, and you, you'll in. get notes from Gary or said. Uh, designer, production designer, all the time about, well, let's not, uh, you know, see that particular window on this particular building. Oh, really? mm -hmm. And you're just like, okay. Um, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm, again, I hope that no one notices those visual effects. Oh, I forgot to mention we're drinking vodka today instead of the usual uh, scotch whiskey. In honor of Mikey, who's oh. a vodka drinker. This yeah, is, I do uh, appreciate that, guys. Square, square one is the... Organic. Organic. And the smoking lamp is off. The smoking lamp is <laughs> oh. unfortunately off. Do you still talk about the smoking lamp? Every, yeah. It's like I, it's so rare that I get to light it. It's like I have to do the podcast in some place where my wife isn't around. <laughs> right. And I won't get busted in some office <laughs> environment. So the smoking lamp is, is unfortunately out. What I do miss most, though, is the, the cats. Uh, we, you should bring them by if you're going to do it here at the office. Just to... You know, be consistent. Well, I did <laughs> shout out though. We do have Rosie, the yes. big dog. Oh, My yes. dog Rosie's Rosie. Here. She's here. <laughs> Asleep and doesn't yeah. cause any problems, so you won't notice her. <laughs> I got in trouble once on a Battlestar podcast because I made some reference. The cats were driving me insane, and I said something about ah oh, for a burlap sack in a in a river, and people got really upset. You Peter after you. Yeah, they were. Like, oh, I can't <laughs> The Moors are animal lovers, just <laughs> yes, so everyone yes, knows. Yes, we're just saying that. They even have chickens. That's right. Anyway. <laughs> okay, coming up is a big transition that um, uh, originally in the in the story it was it was a less interesting transition. Frankly, I just sort of said that Frank and Claire were going to get in the car, uh, drive away from the house, and um, the Reverend and Mrs. Graham were going to wave goodbye, and then we were going to transition from that to the ship arriving in in uh, La Havre. Um, Stars, Chris Albrecht, actually, the president of the network, kept saying to me, that's just really boring. He said, can't you come up with something more cinematic? More it has to be a really great transitional shot there. And I was like, ah, fuck, you know, like, really? So I kept, like, mulling it over and bitching about it. And eventually I was like, all right, what could be an interesting cinematic transition? And I started thinking about transportation. Okay, the car to the ship is not a great transition. Okay, what about a... Oh, maybe it's an ocean liner. So my first pass was, maybe it's an ocean liner. Let's look in, and I had David Brown, our, our line producer in Scott, and started looking into docks that we could shoot at and maybe do a green screen ocean liner sequence where Claire and Frank are going up the ramp onto an ocean liner, and then you would have Claire and, and Jamie coming down the ramp in the 18th century. And I kind of was tickled with that idea for a while, and then somewhere along the line I just thought, that wasn't quite as big a leap as, a, as an airplane. Oh, an airplane, that's a bigger shift of technology and then we could actually be in America and coming off the airplane in, in New York City and that could be the transition. When she gets to the bottom, she reaches out her hand and the hands will be the transition. So it was like, okay, Chris, yeah, you got your more cinematic transition and it's actually a much better idea. It's a good note. <laughs> it was a very good note. 
So now that sets us up for this very elaborate visual effects sequence that is just lots and lots of things to, to, to talk about how this was all accomplished. I think it's the most elaborate we've done, right? This is a pretty yeah. elaborate one. This was a lot of green screen work, a lot of 3D modeling, a lot of just hours and time spent going over and over these shots. Yeah, and also extra visual effects shoots for the different elements, um, which we've, we've actually kind of gotten better and better and better at yeah. um, throughout the season. It's now not quite as scary as it used to be. Found our sea legs. Yeah, exactly. I just say, Katrina is an absolute pleasure to cut. Uh, certain actors never misses her lines, always gives you, a, not a variety, but there's a range within the takes that you can, if you want to like change it and play it slightly less serious or more serious, or makes my job very easy. I just appreciate that she knows exactly where she is. Yeah, she knows it's kind of amazing. She always knows where she is in the story. She always knows what the intent of the scene is. It kind of guides me when I'm cutting it. <laughs> yeah. She's even, uh, even in our ADR sessions with voiceover, her first instincts yeah. are so spot on. Um, and she'll literally go, what? Try one more time. And usually if she's right, yeah. then the next performance is what we choose. How much ADR do we do in any individual episode? Well, I have to say, and I'm not sure, uh, I, our, our on-set sound recordist uh, is amazing, um, Brian Milliken. He, he my, my mixers, my sound suit. Yeah, it's uh, impressive. Normally on any, any other show I've worked on, you're talking, Claire, for example, Kat would have maybe 30 lines of ADR. We have maybe six. Really? I don't yeah. know if our actors are aware of how easy they have like, it. Like, we have it. Well, and also I have to tip my hat to Vince, our yeah, uh, sound uh, editorial uh, supervisor, and then our mixers, Nello and Al. They can do wonders as well. Yeah. So we make a lot of, because, uh, you know, the Highlands are windy and yeah. intense in the sound. And most of our stuff is exterior. And yeah, we have a lot more exteriors than, you know, yeah. a lot of other shows. Usually you have a bowl of that. So, yeah, so I would say, you know, cat, maybe six lines. I think... Um, that's incredible, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that is pretty Although cool. I will say, uh, poor Sam has more only because we have those requests to Americanize his accent yeah, sometimes. Yeah, that's, that's really tricky stuff. Cause, Just to understand what they're yeah. saying. And a lot of times we get so used to hearing them in the Scottish mm -hmm. accent, and then other people in the network or the studio go, I, what? Yeah. What did he say? Exactly. So, yeah, it's weird. I can hear them now because I do it all day yeah. perfectly. There's yeah. no problem. But in the beginning, I was... But we put the ADR note on the screen, yeah. and I would write it constantly. Now I never do. So yeah, and, say, and that goes for Colin and Dougal and Angus and Rupert. We sometimes have to ask them to just kind of lay low on the Scottish. <laughs> uh, there's the blue coat yeah. again. Love the blue coat. Love the blue coat from Great. season one. And actually, um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about this, but the, the insert shot of the two rings um, oh, yeah. as well, and the, the stone that was added later on. Yeah, the, at the very beginning, uh, Craig, way back in Craig and Dunn, uh, her discovering that, uh, that she'd lost the ring and trying to find the ring and then realizing that the stone of the ring was gone and something we added much later in the process, well after the show was done, for various story reasons having to do with time travel that we realized we needed to establish. 
<coughs> that you will discover later. <laughs> I, I really this. like the way Metten did this. Yeah, I love this. Okay, there is no airplane. No airplane. The there, window's real. The window's real and everything else is green. So there's no aircraft there. That's just a big green screen, just sort of mocked up fuselage. The stairs are real, the people are real. Everything else is CG. Everything, the sky. This took so much time and effort. They did an amazing job. I completely believe that that's an aircraft. Uh, the people are real, the luggage is real, everything else is the CG in these shots. Yeah, everything's CG. A lot of work to get the skyline right, to get the perspective right, to get the sense of distance. This is live. This is this uh, this whole little sequence was shot out back behind the sound stages, uh, near where the actor trailers are. Again, there's no aircraft back there, so all those reflections had to be put in. We had to age the fuselage. It's a tiny little parking lot. <laughs> it's a tiny little parking lot. And even there, in the hand, the sky is not real. We added the sky in that. Yeah, because the sky just was blank. You couldn't tell that it was clouds. It just looked like a white background. And... Oh, yeah. <laughs> that guy. Oh, yeah. That guy. Oh, Outlander. Team Jamie. <laughs> right, it's not the Frank and Claire show. That's right. That is a lot of work in that shot. The ship is real, the ramp is real, and there's a dock and water there, but all the buildings on the, on the side are all CG. This was shot, I don't remember the name of this place. Yeah. You, this is, there, there's a, we, this is location in Scotland. Uh, the town is very excited, I remember. Yes, I mean, the, the water out there is real, and uh, we are at a dock, but it's a very sort of bare bones, mostly concrete dock. That wall back there is real. Uh, when you go to the other side and you're looking at the buildings and you're looking at the wide shots, all the buildings and structures are pretty much put in in, in, in CG. Hey. Uh, Duncan's great. Uh, in the first draft, there was an extended walk and talk sequence here with Claire and Jamie that dealt with a, a lot of the issues that are now covered in, in the inn and later with Jared. Uh, her talking him into uh, pursuing the idea of changing or stopping the war as opposed to trying to win the war. I had a whole different take on it in the first draft uh, was Claire made this long analogy about she had seen um, two world wars, really. The first war, she went on this extended speech about World War One and how that had happened, and it happened, everybody thought it was gonna be over uh, quick and easy, and then it ended up taking four years and costing millions of lives. And she was doing it to illustrate that once a war starts, there was no way to sort of predict how it was gonna go, so that the best, the best way to start it, to stop the disaster from befalling the Scots was not to have the Jacobite Rebellion uh, happen at all. Uh, it was one of those sort of writerly speeches that you fall in love with on the page, and as you're writing, you're like, oh, I love this. these words. They're flowing. It's so beautiful. And then people read it, and they go, you know what? This is just a long, stupid speech about World War I. What does this have to do with fucking anything? And I say, well, but it's a good it's speech. It's fascinating. But it's fascinating. It's good for another show. Yeah, good for another show. And then you go, well, maybe it doesn't really work. So then it got cut, and this scene became a little bit more personal, because now it starts with um, Jamie's 
sort of shadow of Jack Randall and still and reminding the audience, oh yeah, this is just a few days after the events from uh, the end of last season, and he's still under, you know, he's still feeling the re reverberations of all that in his character and dealing with sort of their personal story before we get into the larger sort of political political moves. Uh, didn't you say uh, or tell me that the Abbey that happened in the last episode of season one was supposed to be in this episode originally? Originally, in the book, the way the book is structured is that um, they leave Scotland and then go to this uh, uh, Abbey in France and that's where his recovery happens and that's where she gets to the bottom of what really happened between Jamie and Jack Randall back in Wentworth Prison, and the whole healing process and discovery and, and revelations of all that actually happened in France. And when we were working on season one, I just felt that I wanted to keep them in Scotland and keep the jeopardy of their escape live so that the, all the Abbey stuff just got moved back and put into Scotland so that we could end season one with him leaving for France and getting on the, on, on the, on the ship. Cleaner for television. It was just cleaner, yeah. yeah. I don't know the tactics. I don't know the strategy. I don't know where the armies were. Uh, this is on our sound stages, actually. This is now the first time we were back on our sound stages uh, in season two, as I recall. We're at, we started on location. We were doing the Frank and Claire stuff out at the Reverend Wakefield's house, which was on location. And then this was built on one of our sound stages. And I think this was finally the return to the Cumbernauld uh, facility this, was this scene. <clears throat> yeah, and always good to note that they were also shooting episodes two and three simultaneously. Yes, this was <laughs> a super block. Super block, like pretty impressive what the director and sales crew and everybody could do. A lot of discussion and tedious conversation about Jamie's bandaged hand and the brace that we eventually, you'll see later, that he develops to wear and you know how mangled was his hand going to be permanently and well, what kind of a brace would it be and well are there bandages on it now what kind of bandages and when do the bandages come off and when does he go to the brace and how flexible is the brace and just like on and on and on you just it's one of those things that seems so small but somehow takes up an, an inordinate amount of your your time make some introductions It is funny when you see a memo that we're going to have a meeting about something yeah. specific, mm -hmm. just about that. You know, <laughs> that yeah. eight people attend. And <laughs> tomorrow's break. Jamie's bra hand break. Yeah. I just I feel for the the makeup department too, though. I mean, Jamie, if, we, if you guys read a scene where he's got his shirt off, it's like every scar on the planet. I mean, his body oh, yeah. is just covered in scars now. It's like two hours, I think, or yeah. an hour and a half. How much do you He's fix that in the back? Uh, well, I mean, you know, again, hats off to the makeup department, but, you know, our scenes, he is moving. Right. He is doing action scenes, so right. the makeup can only, you know, stay and on. The and the lights. And the lights, so, you know. Cause the glue to run or something, right? Well, or? you know, you're going to see edges. Right. So visual effects does smooth down um, any kind of edge work on the makeup just to help him out a bit. Yeah we'll, yeah, we'll see the back coming up mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in two more scenes. Yeah, And basically, yeah, we're just trying to take down that it looks like uh, any kind of plastic or yeah. that it, there's any edges, um, just to make it smoothing, the smoothing color. it out. But they, I mean, what you see is really what makeup's created, you know, they created. And they literally have a map of all his wounds. Yeah. Yep. I and mean, they have a map of they all do. the wounds on his body. 
which just keeps getting bigger and bigger. We, yeah, we've got the, as I said, the bullet wound, the back, when, was, when he was stabbed. Where he cut out the little seal. Yep. From, you know. from JR. The growing list. <laughs> and for those that have read the books, so they know there's only more to come. Yeah, <laughs> which is horrible. I can't. I'm sorry. behind this, this cloth of rice for I do love that we go to locations so much. Oh, it opens the show in a great way. Yeah, it really does. It makes you feel like you're really there. Yeah, it's like a movie. There's a lot of discussion in the writer's room about, you know, when and how they would tell Murtaugh the truth about what was really going on. I don't think that they really did in the book, but the way the show kind of developed, you sort of felt that these three characters form a bit of a trio in this yeah. whole adventure in Paris, and it, we we just felt it was really awkward to keep trying to not have Murtaugh aware, and then at some point well, they Murtaugh, respect him too. Yeah, they respect him and the relationship that they had formed, and, and particularly between him and uh, Claire in, in episode in season one. You know, he's Jamie's godfather, but you know he really bonded with Claire in season one in particular. So now the three of them are on this journey together, and we just kind of felt that. They had, we had to acknowledge this, that you know, he was smart enough to know that they were keeping something from him, and eventually they would have to tell him, and it just felt like, okay, let's just address it here in the, in the first episode, make the promise that eventually we're going to tell Murtaugh the truth. Visual effects shot again. I admire your patriotism, to be sure. Okay. I am curious as to your sudden change of heart. And this is really Jared's only appearance in the show. Is this is this uh, in the series really? Is is these uh, these little scenes here at the end of uh, 201? I don't think he comes back to us. Mm -hmm. No, but actually, I would like to note that this is the first time we're seeing real Parisian wear. Oh, that's um, true. So this is the first time that uh, we see something a little bit fancier. Yeah. Silks. Mm. And I will say, um, you know, uh, we're, this is where we're trying to transition to Paris, and we did a lot of extensive uh, color correction uh, with Ron and Terry on uh, making sure that we did justice to the beautiful costumes coming up. And this one, I remember clearly, we had made sure that his um, coat reflected the, the exact color. That because they look was. quite different in dailies when we get it. Sometimes yeah. a green coat will look gray or... And he kind of has kind of like a pumpkin colored vest, yeah. you know, so we just want to make sure that all those colors were shown. And as we see later on, it gets even fancier with yes. St. Germain. That color is, I mean, it's, it's remarkable how much time and effort is now spent just in the color correction process. It makes such a huge difference. And our color, our color artist name uh, Stephen is... Stephen Porter. Porter. Uh, he is really great. Uh, Very talented guy. We can just give him kind of like a general idea. He, he just runs with it and has, <coughs> has his own thoughts and contributes many As, different ideas. Another great thing, one of the great things about Steve also is he's a cinephile. And so when we do the looks, you know, different looks for the World War II era mm -hmm. and for the 1940s and for this, he really brings a, you know, a cinematic knowledge to what... You know, especially well, yeah, when you want to add grain and stuff like that yeah. to the, and yeah. make it look like a certain film stock. 
he off the top of his head he'll tell you oh that's Kodak 1953 <laughs> and it's just like exactly and uh, well and I would say back going back to the uh, plane sequence LaGuardia um, that was actually his idea was to go with that technicolor look because all I had said was I go I feel like this is clear becoming you know starting a new life I want to make it different from 1940s and he said okay let me play with it and he came back and he said you know I went technicolor where you know, when they started developing the Technicolor uh, film process, uh, the colors that would come out were more pronounced were reds and greens. So that's why that is kind of more vibrant, um, you know, cinematically. So it looks different. It's amazing to sit in the bay and watch him work. Because you know, I, I went to a couple of early sessions where we just discussed sort of conceptual things and went through some sequences. And to see him play around with color and how radically he can change it and how subtly he can change it. And how into it he gets. Yeah, he gets really into yeah. it. He's passionate. It's a fascinating process. Well, like, yeah, just for example, in this scene, um, he can literally take that coat on Jared and affect just the coat and nothing else. Mm -hmm. If you want that coat to be more green or more blue or whatever, you can do that no problem. He can bring details out of shadow or buried details in the shadow. It's just it's remarkable. But I should say it also stems from our DP. Because um, if the information's not there and the, the design's not there, there's not much Steve can do. And that's Steve McNutt, by the way, our DP. Yeah. Steve, who came to the show this, this season. I worked with Steve on, on Battlestar Galactica. He's an amazing... Emmy-nominated uh, cinematographer who I enjoyed working with very much. It was really fun to have Steve uh, now join our, our family. I've been delaying a trip to the West Indies until I could find someone competent and trustworthy enough to run the wine business in my absence. There was a little piece here that was cut that will probably end up in the deleted scenes uh, later on in the DVD that I'm sure you're all going to buy. <laughs> that... Uh, they have they do a toast to seal the deal after you know they pour some whiskey and there's a po there's a little ritual they do that's to honor the king over the water which is the exiled king King James. Yeah, it's a nice little moment. It's a nice little moment. It's a real Jacobite tradition, but again, we were trying to get our runtime down and some it's one of you something get to has to go. Something's got to go, and it was an easy cut to make. You're like, oh well, if we cut the if we cut the toast, then we're on time. By the way, editing-wise, one of the great things about working on premium cable is not having to worry about that strict running time, yeah. that it commercial television. So we can be anywhere between, what? I think it's 52 or 50 minutes and like 60 minutes. Right, so you're just worried about making the show good instead of getting it to time. <laughs> Yeah, and when you're breaking them down into individual acts for commercial uh, breaks and those false climaxes oh, and so <laughs> where you have to have the intense music right before right. the show. This is a lot of VFX work. All that that's, that's almost all I mean the people down walking across there are real, the water's real, not much else. The sequence coming up is they go into the into the the, the warehouse. I remember you had to re-edit this quite a bit. Quite a bit. Because I think one of the problems was in this, it was a script problem. I didn't, I identified who everyone was in the script, like, oh, this is the captain, this is the port official, and this is this in St. Germain. But I didn't actually, in dialogue, identify. Right. So there were all these people running Coming around. in and giving orders, and one yeah. seemed to be in charge of the other, and you didn't understand the hierarchy. And So I had to rewrite it, which meant it was going to be like... A lot of ADR and a lot of French ADR. Right. <laughs> you had to like completely like rejigger this whole thing. The captain tried to stop me from seeing the sick crewman because he knew the truth. 
Yes, so there's the moment where you identify the captain. Oh, and it's actually pouring rain out that wind, out that. In door. some of the takes, and the other half of the takes, it's not raining at all. Yeah. So, so we added the rain, right? Or do we take away the rain? Remove the rain. Remove the rain. I would say half the shots. There was discussion whether it would be cheaper to add or to remove. It was. It was hard. Um, <laughs> like in those shots, like looking out the window, the, the door there. Sorry. It pouring. It was just pouring, and then in other takes, it wasn't. Yeah. Ah, uh, and then. Uh, dun, dun, dun. The comp. Again, thank you for casting. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, the women in the office seem to be very fond of I know, Comcast is fans. <laughs> There's Team Comp. Yes. They, they seem to really... <laughs> and we cut some stuff out in the middle here, which made it a little difficult to reconfigure the geography. A lot of the scene was drawn straight from the book, so we were sort of following along with how, how Diane had laid out you know, the sequence of events and then yeah, once and then once we started cutting and changing, then it became difficult to get you back right. on track. Speaking of Diana, one of the great moments that the only time I've ever met her is when you brought her in to show her for the first time ever, episode one. Oh yeah. And then you had to go back to the story break in the other building and so it was just the two of us, she and I watching <laughs> for a good portion of it. And uh, I remember asking her after it was done, I said, so is it anything like what you've had in your head for 20 years? And she said, in some ways it might be even a little better. <laughs> so I was relieved. Yeah, uh, that was a big moment. Yes. And she signed my book, and uh, it was a great moment for me. Now this season, obviously, there's a lot of French in the show, and I think that has doubled up on you guys having to double check lines and ADR lines. And yeah, so our process there is uh, in Scotland, our Scotland editorial staff, when they do the editor's cut and director's cut, they kind of do a pass with Guillaume, our translator, who uh, just kind of checks the dailies, and we kind of locate or you know, make sure that we, we know what they're saying. But then, of course, it goes through many different passes, um, so once we, we lock it, and some of us have a general idea. And Meryl speaks very good French. So. Yeah, so, you know, we're, we're, we have a general idea, but then once the episode is locked, we do send it back to the writers and to Guillaume and Meryl and go, did we get it right? And, uh, you know, we're generally right, but then they... Meryl can't. keeps us honest. <laughs> Meryl keeps us honest. It's going to be hard to cut, like when you're putting it, putting the initials assembly together the scenes when it's a language you don't speak well, and you're just trying to cut the... I'll be honest, when you're first cutting it, you're not really paying attention to exactly what they're saying. Honestly, I don't know what they're saying. Yeah. So I do it just dramatically by the, you know, the look on their face and then that's when you, after that is when you have to start like, you know, being honest ourselves about it. <laughs> I feel like you gave us good training wheels with the Gallic from last season. Yes, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know any what they're saying at all, yeah. but I remember sending it back to our uh, right. Adam and it just... Yeah, big difference is, I think, what, 15,000 people speak Gallic? Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> quite a few more speak French. We had a lot of conversations, uh, both in the writers' room and with the studio network, about how much French we were going to play in the show this season. Because it was—it was—it's a fine line. It, it, you need it for the authenticity of it, but how often do you want to read subtitles in the show? It's become TV America. It's 
particular American TV audiences have become more and more familiar with reading subtitles, but it's still kind of one of those things that you, you, want, you don't want the show to be completely a foreign film. Right. Mm -hmm. Now this is actually stock footage, as I recall. That my amazing co-supervisor, Michelle Mason, she found this. I mean, it really looks like we, we shot it specifically yeah, we, for, it has the barrels of yeah, everything. I mean, it's uh, amazing. Basically, we thought this is going to often be either shot or visual affected, and so... Uh, for a tenth of the price of shooting, probably. Oh, even less. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, this was found through Sony stock footage. So this is for some Sony movie somewhere. I honestly have no right. idea which one. And then the wider shots are visual effects shots that, that Richard farmed out and produced. There was an intervening scene that we cut because uh, it really didn't give you anything. It was like Claire and Jamie getting into the carriage with uh, Jared getting ready to go to Paris and they were sort of recapping what had happened and saying, oh yeah, St. Germain's a bad guy and you guys are in trouble and then they went to the dock and kind of set it right. all over. There was a light moment with Murtaugh fighting with the guy who was oh, yeah. loading the, That's right. the carriage. <laughs> and this is all CG. His eyes are glowing. I just noticed that. He's so evil. <laughs> He's so evil. Well, there you have it, 201. The, the beginning of uh, season two. It started two episodes in one, I've always thought. Um, but a good start to the season overall. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Mikey, and thank you, Alicia, uh, for, thank for, you for joining having me us. on the podcast. And uh, we will talk to you very soon in episode 202. So until then, I'm Ronald D. Moore, and good night and good luck. <laughs>